The following program uses what are sometimes called four-letter words, though in this case they're actually eight letters and perhaps a seven-letter gerund. It's Tuesday, April 12th, 2022, from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The UN High Commissioner for Human Rights says that 1,842 civilians have been killed in Ukraine. This is an undercount, a massive undercount. Estimates out of one city, Mariupol, say 10,000, maybe 20,000. In war, numbers like this are nebulous. They're always used for a cause. More accurate are the 100 million refugees. The neighboring countries to Ukraine are assiduous about counting them. And now on to another war, Tigray, Ethiopia. The Tigray region of Ethiopia. There are three wars going on in the world. Today, Ukraine is getting almost all the coverage, but a report came out from the UN about the Ethiopian region of Tigray, where ethnic conflict has claimed, estimates say, up to half a million lives. Uh, the breakdown is 50 to 100,000 victims of direct killings, 150 to 200,000 starvation deaths, and 100,000 due to lack of medical care. Like in Ukraine, war crimes are alleged in Tigray. The charge of genocide is also made there more credibly even than in Ukraine. And there are two to three million refugees in Tigray. Now in Ukraine, it's 10 million. Ukraine is a country of 40 million people. Ethiopia has well over 100 million people, by the way. I've seen experts say they are worried that the war in Ukraine will overshadow the war in Tigray. No worry of that because you can't place a shadow on that which was dark. Still, the UN cared. The UN and other relief organizations, but principally the UN, gave resources to administer to the refugees, to administer to those who were suffering. And those resources now have competition. So remember I said three wars? Yemen is the last one. And in Yemen, there is good news, or at least uh, seemingly pause in the bad news. Saudi Arabia seems to have become sick of its failures and its ongoing commitment. There is a two-month ceasefire that was announced last week in Yemen. The president of Yemen, this is the internationally recognized president, not the Houthi president in power, the president in exile, stepped aside, which for practical purposes, it means I think he moved from one floor of his hotel in Saudi Arabia to a different floor. Seriously, that was the insult that the Houthi rebels lobbed at their old government, the government of hotels. That's what they say. Why listen to this guy? But this all is progress, Hadi, the old Yemeni president, stepping aside. It at least says to the Houthi rebels and their Iranian backers, look, we're ready to change the dynamic. Is it progress? Let's just say it's a lack of slippage. Maybe it's a little stabilization. Hadi, the hotelier, is out he moved from the palm suite to the pineapple suite, or maybe the other way around, who knows? And the Saudis seem to have lost their taste for intractable conflict. This is, by the way, not a notably bellicose time in world history, Yemen, Tigray, Ukraine. One has cooled, one is the site of a surprisingly effective resistance, and one is all but ignored, though it seems to be the bloodiest of the bunch. On the show today, I'm going to tell you what. I'm at jury duty now. I made those depressing international observations and then made it over to the state courthouse in Brooklyn. I would, by the way, love to be on a jury, just not now. 
During my 11 years with NPR, that would have been a great time to do it. During the seven years with the old employer, could have been taken into account. My year with no place, that would have been fine. Not now. Can't do it. Still going to answer all the questions, honestly. But in the spirit of examining the criminal justice system from within, it's where I consider myself now, I therefore am going to play a big two-part interview with a guest who I've wanted to have on since the show rebooted. DeRay McKesson is the CEO and founder of Campaign Zero. They advocate for police reform. They are, by my eyes, practical about their advocacy. During the recent protests over the death of George Floyd, they developed a program of eight reforms that, if instituted, would reduce police abuse and deaths by, they put a very specific number to it, actually, 72%. But the point is, they're not afraid to take big swings, and they're also not overly romantic about the power of their passions to become enforceable law and codes of conduct simply by dint of the purity or intensity of their feelings. This, by the way, hasn't always put McKesson in good stead with everyone else in the criminal justice reform movement, which we will talk about. Here to tell us what he's advocating for and what he's dealing with is DeRay McKesson in two parts. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. Doreen McKesson is the executive director of Campaign Zero, the organization that advocates for policing reform. Their most notable effort since the protests of 2020, to my mind, has been to promote a raft of reforms that police departments could adopt called Eight Can't Wait. Uh, I'll read you the eight. Ban chokeholds and strangleholds require de-escalation, require warning before shooting, require exhausting all alternatives before shooting, duty to intervene, which means one cop has to stop another cop if they're violating the law or any of these precepts, ban shooting on moving vehicles, require use of force continuum, require comprehensive reporting. These are tangible, doable, practical reforms endorsed because power concedes nothing without a demand, so why not make a demand? I want to check in on how these demands have been being adopted, what the effect is, and what the organization is doing now. DeRay, welcome back to The Gist. It's good to be here. (laughs) So I've seen the map on your website, and it looks like some progress is being made. How many departments have adopted some of these policies? So remember, we're not the government, so we can't force departments to tell us when they make changes. But we did uh, laws in 19 states. So it's a single biggest reduction of the power of the police in U.S. history. Uh, Over 300 cities have have changed their policies to be more restrictive, which is a good thing. But zooming out, let me tell you is that, you know, we think about change uh, across sort of four buckets. There is the status quo, which says that what works now works, right? That nothing's Mm -hmm. wrong. It works. Reform says it it works. We need to tinker at the edges. 
harm reduction, which is almost all of our, which is a lot of our work. Uh, most of the big campaigns are harm reduction. Harm reduction says it doesn't work, but we need to save people's lives in the interim. And abolition says it doesn't work. We need a whole new system. So we think yeah. about it can't wait. It can't wait is saying the police are here today. We we want a world beyond policing, and we believe that world is possible. They are here today. And we want people not to get choked to death. We don't want them not to get shot in their car, all those things. So it's been really effective. It has shaped the narrative around use of force. Uh, and it is one of a handful of campaigns. We're launching 15 more campaigns in the first half of 2022. And we have about five active ones now. Right. So that's it's interesting and notable that you frame it that way. But I want to get into which reforms have worked, which have been adopted. And then we'll I want to uh, join you on the zoom out that you just proposed. Yeah. So which have been the big ones, which have been of those eight? Some of them are very practical, like it, you either shoot at cars or you don't. And some of them maybe are a little more esoteric, like what does uh, what does duty to intervene really mean? There seem to be gray areas. But you tell me which are the ones that have been most embraced and which are the ones that have you you think had had the most effect on reducing police violence? So uh, banning neck restraints was one that really did just spread across the country really well. The hard part for us is, and I'll never forget talking to somebody, a uh, congressional staffer, a high-ranking staffer, first when we started, he was like, but Dre, we'd already banned chokeholds. And I was like, no, we didn't. We had not banned all neck restraints. And the loophole here that, I don't know if you'd know this, is that the difference between a chokehold and a stranglehold, a chokehold is your Adam's apple, like your airway. A stranglehold or carotid restraint is the muscles around your neck. So what departments have historically done, like New York City, they ban chokeholds, but don't ban strangleholds. And functionally, right. they're the same. So what we help do is like make people ban all neck restraints. The other one that's been really powerful is actually what we call on the website require comprehensive reporting. What that means functionally is that the police have to report every single time they point their gun at somebody. And we're in like the first 2022 is sort of the first year that we have a complete year. We have all of the 2021 data from the places that, that implemented it. At Milwaukee, you look at the Milwaukee, Milwaukee didn't have the rule they now do is that lo and behold, they point their guns at people, mostly in the black neighborhoods, right? Like you, the data is actually coming in to help us see these things. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, I, you know, all of them are good, but, but it's been cool to see them adopted and to see uh, them change practice in cities. The conversation, the national conversation around policing often concentrates on a flashpoint. And there was one recently um, where prosecutors in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, chose not to prosecute police who shot and killed a guy named Andrew Brown. And Andrew Brown was driving, to my mind, driving away in his car, though the officers claimed they were, he, he backed up, he moved forward, he was trying to evade them, but they claimed for a time that uh, he was endangering their lives. If your policies had been in place, would the prosecution of those, of those policemen have been less subjective? We try to stay out of the hypotheticals, partly because we feel so confident in our analysis that we're like, let's talk about the policy. Let's talk about the situation. But in general, yeah, like, you know, the the ideal moving vehicles policy requires the police to get out of the way of a moving vehicle. And the reason for this, and like we did this with police chiefs across the country who pushed them on this, is that if you shoot the driver, you don't stop the car, Right. Like, it's not like killing the driver automatically hits the brakes. The car goes from being a guided missile to an unguided missile was actually worse for everybody. And like once we pushed the police to acknowledge that it was this was actually like an easy one to get in. I mean, honestly, we think all the eight are easy. Like we don't you're like you should sort of point you should uh, report every time you point your gun at people. You know, like we think all these are pretty easy.
Well, but from you uh, talk to civic officials, you talk to mayors, different people who have different appetites for wanting to reform the police. In your experience, are some that are more readily grasped for and endorsed and some that you get more pushback on? Yeah, so I'd say that of the eight, uh, requiring de-escalation is one that what cities will do that's sneaky uh, <laughs> with requiring de-escalation and exhausting all alternatives before shooting is they will uh, they'll try and make that a training requirement. So like not like not actually require de-escalation, but require training on de-escalation, not actually require exhausting all alternatives, but require training. Those two are the ones that people get really sneaky on. And then with chokeholds, they sort of bank on the fact that you don't that the public doesn't know what chokeholds are. So they will like they'll ban one and not the other. And like you don't know any different. Do you know what I mean? You're saying that they emphasize it as a best practice, but if you violate that practice, there's no consequence for the police on the force. Yeah, because if you make de-escalation, if you don't actually require de-escalation, but just require training for it, when the officer doesn't de-escalate, I can't really do anything. I can't discipline you. I can't file a complaint because like it wasn't a policy requirement. And this is actually the big thing. And, and you know, there are three ways to hold the police accountable. It's administrative criminal and civil. Qualified immunity is civil. Criminal is being charged with the crime, but the police rarely get charged with crimes. Uh, so administrative is really our best way to get you off the street. Mm-hmm. And that's why we need this stuff to be policy. So some of these policies have been put in place and enacted. Is it too early to tell if it's having an effect on a reduction in police brutality and police killings? It is too early because we just did it. Uh, But there's 40 years of research that shows that more restrictive policies leads to less shootings and less killings. So like we stand by that. And this is just one of many campaigns that we have in place. So we're happy about this. It is like it is the one that community members probably push police departments on the most. You know, we'll get emails from citizens being like, hey, can you look over my policy? The police departments will say, hey, can you look over this? And remember, have you ever heard of a company called Lexapol? I think so. Tell me about them. So Lexapol is like Alec. You've heard of Alec? Yeah, they write uh, laws for mostly conservative lawmakers. Yeah. So Lexapol writes the policies for the biggest police departments in the country. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they're, they're our biggest sort of like competition in this space because they'll write these really bad policies and we come in and we push people to change those policies. So like a a good example of a policy that we see a lot is that there are policies around the country that'll say the police can use deadly force if you are fleeing because you just committed a felony with a violent weapon, Mm -hmm. which sounds like it makes sense. But what that means in practice is like if you robbed a bank, put the gun down, walked outside, the police could just kill you. Yeah. Because you just committed a felony. And it's like, but felony, the threshold for felony is pretty low. So I know you're in Brooklyn, but guess how much you have to steal in New Jersey to be considered a felon? Like, what's the threshold? Well, I, for, you know, I know I, I know how these things work, where you want a big number to impress me. But it, what what's it around? Like 600 bucks? It's 200. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's the lowest in, in the U.S. It was set in 1978. Theft over $200 can get you 18 months in prison. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. You know, so when you see the law say something like if you committed a felony, the officer can use deadly force. You're like, well, most people hear felony, they think murder. But the most the felonies that get charged the most are not things like murder. Well, what about just the idea that as that law is written, an, an unarmed man that the uh, or an unarmed person and the police wouldn't even contest that it wasn't an unarmed person. They would just have to say, well, a felony was committed and therefore we have within within some sort of indeterminate time frame license to kill that person full stop. 
Yeah, it, it makes no sense to us. And this is why, you know, we got a lot of pushback from people inside the movement about it. But we're like, if if somebody from our side's not in the room, the police are literally just going to keep doing this unchallenged. And like, that's wild, right? So yeah. we understand that it can't, I mean, this is why we have a whole lot of campaigns. We understand that it can't wait is not the like, it's not the end all be all. It's not the only thing we do, but it is certainly one thing that we do to stop the tide of abuse. So I want to get to that too. But first, let me ask about a reform that is very much in the news and to some extent has been enacted, which is the end of qualified immunity. How important a reform do you think this is and what has your organization done to advocate for it? Yep. So we're actually launching a big thing about QI coming in the next month. So we made a rubric about qualified immunity. There are nine steps that states need to take. Rubric's not public yet, but but every state that is working on a law today around QI, we have worked with them on it. The big thing about QI is that, remember, I said there are three ways that you can hold the police accountable. So criminal, civil, and um, criminal, civil, and administrative. So eight can wait is administrative. Uh, criminal is the police rarely get charged with crime, so that's not really a lever. And civil is what QI means. So QI says that if the police engage in misconduct, that they can be sued civilly. That's like the mm-hmm. like the end of QI would would let you sue for damages. Emotional stress, da da da, medical costs, uh, and that is big because QI is really like a victim's rights bill, or it's like a victim compensation bill. Weirdly, in the news media, people sort of call it an accountability bill, but like really, QI won't hold you accountable because like you're not really going to get sued. You're indemnified, and indemnified means that your employer has taken legal responsibility for your actions at work. So really, this is going to be cities and towns are going to get sued or states. The individual office is going to be fine. So we, we've always been a little confused by the way people talk about QI as like some big police accountability thing because the actual officer will be fine. Yeah, I wonder how big an effect it can have. Is there a way to study that? There are states without it and there are states with it. Yeah, so, you know, their incredible professor at UCLA, Professor Joanna Schwartz, is one of the leading scholars on QI. And they anticipate that the end of QI will lead to a uh, an increase in civil lawsuits. And there is a belief that cities will act differently so that they don't incur the cost of these lawsuits, right? Like, And the thing about QI that's really important to remember is that it's only invoked in the most egregious cases. Like, Cities will invoke it when they know the police have done something wrong because the bar is so high legally to meet. So here's a famous case. This went to the Supreme Court. The police handcuff a guy on the ground. Then they sick their dog on him, and, and the dog mauls the guy. Mm-hmm. The guy goes, I'm going to sue. And he can't sue because of qualified immunity. Because the bar says that there has to be a case in the past with a similar fact pattern for him to be. And you're like, that's sort of wild. So it's like cities will definitely understand that these things are bad. They will understand that, like, if this keeps happening, they're going to be bankrupt. And there is a belief that these civil lawsuits might be a lever to push departments to change. Right. So are there. QI bills that would be um, the perfect form of it that would have a bigger impact in terms of the overall effort of, you know, diminishing uh, police brutality and abuses? So I I think the end of QI does exactly what it's supposed to do, which is allow victims to sue. Like that really is like the best of what it can do. There are some states like uh, Washington State is, is entertaining a trigger that might, like if an officer successfully sued via the QI process, then they might lose their certification, right? Like those things probably have a bigger impact on real people's lives than suing the police. Because here's the thing, even if the officer does have to pay, there's still going to be a police officer tomorrow. 
That's not yep. helpful. You know what I mean? We want you off the force. We want you to never be allowed to be in this profession. Like, you know, as we work towards a solution beyond policing, we at least want to get the worst people out of it. And we will be back after a short break with more of DeRay McKesson. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. We're back with DeRay McKesson, founder and CEO of Campaign Zero. In this part of the interview, as you're about to hear, we get into some of the pushback he's received, not just from pro-policing organizations, but from reformers, or rather abolitionists, who criticize reformers as inadequate. So you mentioned before uh, the four theories of uh, policing or police reform, status quo reform, harm reduction, and abolition. The abolition movement seems to have gotten some steam and certainly seems to have put themselves in direct opposition to some of what your organization is doing. You had eight can't wait and they came out with eight to abolition um, where they directly criticized the idea of reform itself. And they talked about, for instance, if you go to their site, they say, we reject the notion of a perfect survivor. We do not believe anyone deserves to get caged, nor do we prescribe to the state's notion of innocence. And if you click on innocence, they have an essay called Against Innocence, which is just to say that we don't think reform is a worthy goal because it won't solve the problem. And my question is, I have a few questions, but has this way of thinking become so powerful that it's really gotten in the way of the work that you've done? You know, so it hasn't stopped our work at all. And here's the thing is that we agree with them about reform. Reform says the system works. We need to tinker around the edges. We agree with them. And that's not the work that we do. We we think the system doesn't work and we need to save people in the interim. So what I always remind people is that, like, I'm against solitary confinement, that I want an end to solitary confinement. I know that an end to solitary confinement is not the end of incarceration. I get it. I know that. And that I have to live in that tension every day. And the end of solitary confinement, though, is not at odds with the end of incarceration. It's not, because I'm against solitary confinement doesn't mean I'm pro prison and jail. It means that like we're operating in two strategies at the same time. So harm reduction and abolition are not they're not in conflict. I always I worry about the language that even suggests that they are in conflict because there's not a, there's not an actual organizer, somebody actually doing work every day that I know that is not dealing with the tension between alleviating the pain and suffering in real people's lives today while working to for big reform. So all the people doing book clubs, writing to people in prison, trying to lower the phone rates, none of that is abolition. That's not the end of the system. That is harm reduction. That's saying the system is here and we got to save people while it's here while we work towards the big change. 
Well, that seems so obvious to me, and I'm going to suspect it seems obvious to the listeners that they might not understand the effect that the abolition movement has had. Um, Your group actually issued an apology it's been characterized as for, quote, unintentionally detracting from efforts of fellow organizers invested in paradigmatic shifts that are newly possible in this moment. It seems like there was a lot of energy, and I know three of the four co-founders of your organization have left, but it seems that there was a ton of energy, perhaps tearing at the reform or activist community, uh, that was just internal tension based on how popular the abolition idea was. Then again, I just know this from reading reports in the media that maybe are drawn to conflict over people working together. But you tell me, how much has the abolition movement put a crimp in everything you guys are trying to do? Yeah, no crimp, because I don't think that we're in conflict. I do think there are people who like, you know, want to see- don't they think you're in conflict? I mean, as I listen to them, they don't, you're you're a reformer, you're practical. They're more, I guess you would say that they're more idealistic. And your practical framing of this doesn't comport with their more idealistic, maybe a critic would say, more radical agenda. Of course, the person who's uh, less radical is going to see that things is not in conflict. And the groups that are more radical are going to say, no, it's incompatible with our idealistic goals. Yeah, I just don't even know what more. I guess I like reject the premise. I, I, There's no... A real person I know who, if I said, do we ban chokeholds, they would say no, because I'm an abolitionist. That feels crazy to me. Like that doesn't Mm -hmm. even feel like a, that doesn't feel like a tenable position that an actual person says out loud. Right. So when we're like, people shouldn't get choked to death. Like, I don't, you know, if there's nobody I know who actually cares about black people or community who says, you know what, let them choke, let the police choke people to death. Cause we want the end of policing. That's not an, that's not an actual position. Right. So do we, you know, are there theorists and are there people who write essays and all that stuff who like, I'm not, but those are not the people I'm worried. About. Like I, that's not what I wake up to every day. Again, there's every single organizer I know, whether they call themselves a staunch abolitionist or do harm reduction to that. We all sort of agree that we have to alleviate people's pain and suffering today and we are working on big, big change at the same time. And like, and about the the makeup of Campaign Zero is that like, we have never had more people over here, never been, we've never done more campaigns. Like we're rocking and rolling uh, and not everybody's meant to stay for the, for the long haul. So like people stay as long as it makes sense. And there was an incredible pressure on us mm-hmm. to disavow AK and Wade and to take it down. And like, I refused to take it down. It was the right thing to do. Uh, I'm proud, you know, of of that moment, I am proud to talk about our wins. I want everybody to put their wins on the table. Like, what did you actually achieve? Like, what are the real things? And this is not hypothetical, it's not theoretical. Like, we can show you every single state that restricted no-knock raids, we wrote those bills, every one of them. You know, like, I'm proud of the work that we've done and know that the only way that we'll win is by having something to show for it, not just writing essays about it. What about the tension of having to having something to show for it. So that will put you in a position of saying, we enacted these reforms and here's how the reforms have lessened police violence. Well, doesn't that take a little bit uh, of the energy away from the activism that the message that progress is being made? Because the abolitionists will say, progress isn't good enough. Yeah, again, I, I guess I'm always grounded in like, who are the real people saying these things? That closing Rikers is a good thing. Yeah. Closing Rikers is not the end of incarceration, though. It's not like it's not like when Rikers closes, nobody's going to jail again. They're just not Mm -hmm. going to that jail. And they but and that place is a hellhole. I mean, that place is awful. 
but they will be held in other places. And it is on the path to abolition. It is like a good, but but no, like if, if you think of closing Rikers as some like sellout, that's not like no real person I know who organizes sort of believes that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. So do you think that the, do you think that the framing or the, even the word abolition is useful for what you're trying to do or not? Yeah, I think, it, you know, all of us have a framework for abolition because we all can think about the end of enslavement as a legal process, right? And like we, like we have seen the worst systems not exist anymore. And I, and I think the abolition pushes people to dream beyond the moment, right? So like, I do think what is fair is if I woke up and thought that banning chokeholds was saving communities, that's the wrong analysis. That is not, banning chokeholds and, and the eight can't wait stuff is, is helping people make it to tomorrow, right? I get it. The big win is actually having a conception of safety that doesn't require people with guns to respond to every single time there's conflict and harm. That is like the big win. And abolition keeps us focused on the big win. I think the only thing that I struggle with is I think that people feel like they have to fight all the other strategies sometimes to fight Mm -hmm. for abolition. And that's just not true. But there's no actual organizer, like somebody doing work in a real community in a real city and state who speaks like that. The only people I know who speak like that are the people who are not doing any real work. Because if you do real work, you know that you got to, that like if everybody dies on the way to the big win, it's not a win. Right, right. Do you feel like your work is mostly trying to push this big boulder of changing institutions and status quo, or is a significant part of your work dealing with the people tugging on your uh, tugging on your shirt, trying to trying to distract you or move you away from pushing against the big boulder. I don't spend any time with the people tugging, really. Uh, so I spend ninety nine point nine percent of my time like moving the boulder. And this is and the reality is, it's like if some the police are in every room, they really are. And if there's not somebody in the room to counter them or like to help seed another idea, so like you know, Breonna Taylor gets killed because of no knocks. Most people start to think that banning no-knock warrants is the way to go. Banning no-knock warrants doesn't matter. Literally, no impact. You could ban the warrants and it doesn't matter. There's another, like there's, you have to do something a little more complicated than just banning no-knock warrants Mm -hmm. because there are two types of search warrants. There's what's called a no-knock, which you know, and then there's what's called a knock and announce, which is like a a regular search warrant. You actually have to restrict the execution of all search warrants in a particular way so they can't turn into no-knocks. It took us three or four months to figure it out and we have scaled it across the country. But instead of, you know, what we didn't do is just say Brianna got killed. We were trying to figure out structurally, how do we make sure this never happens again? And that's the work that we do. Like that is like what we do every day. And like, I'll never apologize for that work. It didn't happen before we did it. We did it. We're still doing it. When Amir Locke got killed in Minneapolis, we that we're working with the mayor. It'll be the best no-knock ban in the United States when it gets done in a couple of weeks. And like, that is real work, you know? Yeah. How'd you find, how'd you figure that out, by the way? Oh, it took forever. So uh, there's one scholar, his name is Pete Kraska. He's a professor, uh, Dr. Pete Kraska, and he's like the leading scholar on no-knocks. He studied it for decades. He helped write Brianna's Law. We reached out to him to just like understand more like the background and da da da. And with him, we started to think about like what would be the way to do it better. Um, so we have a 15 point rubric. The website's called End All No Knocks. And if you go, I think that the, I think Brianna's Law is probably like a five out of 15. Mm-hmm. Maryland Law is a 9.5 out of 15. And Minneapolis will be an 11 out of 15. But we built the rubric 
with Pete, with Dr. Kraska. And then we, you know, workshopped it with other people and stuff like that. And then we made it the law. But that's how we do with all our campaigns. We sort of find like an whoever studied this one random thing or two random things. And then we workshop with them to try and figure out what's the best way to do a ban and how do we make all of the information public. Do you think momentum has slow, slowed down for reforms or just the tension, attention being paid to your efforts have diminished? So not the momentum. I do think what, what is real and what we're facing in state houses across the country is that this narrative that crime is up yeah. has made legislators nervous about doing police stuff. So there are a lot of states this year who were like, let's wait till next year. I'm like a little iffy. And people don't want to do criminal justice stuff in election years. So in any place where there's like an election this year, it has been like uphill battle. They'll be like, I agree with it. I'll vote on it next year. I just can't do it right now. And like that is really annoying. But the appetite in the legislatures is fine. Like it is the same. It is people's willingness to do it in a moment that they think is a little too risky. That is hard. Did the protests lead to plenty of reforms or was it a little disappointing the number of actual reforms that all that energy and momentum was advocating for? Is it disappointing the actual number of reforms that you've gotten? You know, I think that what the protests did was wake a lot of people up to realize that this was like a real thing and not a fringe thing. I think about 2014, we were convincing people all across the country, like the police are killing people. They were like, are they? And we're like, yes, da, da, da. 2020 comes and, and it becomes sort of like an accept. People are like, yes. Mm-hmm. I remember newscasters that we were, I remember talking to people in the news being like, they're shooting tear gas at us. And they were like, are they really? And then they were shooting tear gas at the reporters. And they were like, that really happens. And we're like, we told you, you know? Right. So then 2020 was like the wake up call. You know, my push to everybody inside the movement is like, we need to have things ready on the table. So when moments come, we can like, just easily say, go do this, right? Because, and that's one of the reasons why he can't wait worked. It was like clear, people got it. It was something like they could, same thing with no knocks. We're able to pass the no knock bills because when there's an appetite, we already figured out the answer. Like, you know, no legislators are content expert on all this stuff. Like they're always leaning on somebody to help them fill the gap. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so you always, I do know what you mean. And you, you always want more. You're not satisfied because we're not in a place where police have been close to reformed. But do you look back at the energy of 2020, your policies that were in place, and the amount of actual reform that occurred from your policies? Not discussion, not consciousness raising, actual reforms. And do you say, I don't know, I, I don't, either do you say, that was good, I'm proud of it, we could have done so much more, or given the obstacles, you have to realize that it was quite an accomplishment to get done what we got done. Yeah, I think I'm incredibly proud of the work that we've done. And uh, I'm not disappointed. I am hopeful that the next time there's a big flashpoint, that more people are ready to put things on the table that we can fight like hell for that move us even more down the field. Uh, That's what I'm hopeful for. Because, you know, here's the thing. The police haven't stopped killing people. I mean, it's it's only a matter of time before this becomes a conversation again uh, and for the country, not for any like this is a conversation I do every day. But can we get can we make sure that we like fight and fight and have all the arguments, have all the resources on our side so that we can get the real change that people deserve? I'm hopeful. If a regular person wanted to get involved in your movement, what would be some practical things they could do? 
So we're trying to fix the Campaign Zero website. It's getting redesigned, but there are a lot of ways to volunteer, but there are a lot of cool things. So we would love for you to read your use of force policy in your city so you can see it. Police Union contracts, there's a ton of volunteer work happening there. And we're rolling out a, a whole host of uh, campaigns that are coming soon. So we're trying to build like a way for people to get involved. We don't have it perfectly yet, uh, but it's coming. So, but the Campaign Zero website, campaignzero.org is a, is a good start. But even things like drug-free school zones. Did you know drug-free school zones are a scam? Nothing, they have nothing to do with drugs? Kids. They have to do with what? Just expanding uh, the 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 zone for stricter laws and law enforcement for mandatory minimums. Yep, yep. It's like yeah. another way to package it. So it's like all, we're trying to. You know, we, this is why we have a master list of a hundred campaigns because we're like we're never overwhelmed by the enormity of the problem. We understand the problem as a sum of the pieces and not the whole, and we can map the pieces. That's like our core belief. Doreen McKesson is the executive director of Campaign Zero. He's also the host of the podcast, Pod Save the People. Boop, 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 boop. It's, it's a good listen. Doreen, thanks for talking to me again. Thank you. And that is it for this spearless jury dutiful show. Corey Wara is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is The Gist's senior producer. Michelle Pesca is chief bailiff for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening.